All right, y'all. So I just drove uh, here from East Nashville. I had to fill in for Brant because Brant has COVID. East Nashville's congregation has no air conditioning. So let's just pause and just take a moment and thank Jesus for the modern miracle of those two tubes that are pumping cold air into this room. Um, hey, I'm Dave. Uh, good to be with you guys this morning. I almost had to change shirts on the drive over here. Um, we're in a series called The Gospel Changes Everything. This summer, we're about four weeks in, and our kind of operating premise for this series is that no aspect of our lives, individually or corporately, so as a body, is unaffected by what has happened for us in Jesus Christ. Every aspect of our lives actually is touched by this thing we call the gospel. We've been talking about different areas that the gospel transforms us and changes things for us. First week, we talked about We've been made uh, ambassadors of a new king and a new kingdom, which means he's given us a new identity that we're about proclaiming the fact that we're reconciled to him because of what Jesus has done. And we are the ones that God is using as a mouthpiece to the world to reconcile other people to himself. That's something he's called us into in this new identity. We've looked at the idea that we've been given a new family, that we're called sons and daughters in Scripture, that we're a part of this new family called the Bride of Christ. We'll, we'll hear about that today. We're also given a new heart and a new spirit. So we got sons and daughters, new identity, ambassadors, but to live out of those new identities, we actually have to be given a new heart and a new spirit in order to do that. So all sorts of things have changed for us because of what has happened in Jesus but this morning, we're going to talk about how the gospel changes our future, all right? That we have, if you're in Christ this morning, you have a new secure future uh, that you may not spend a whole lot of time thinking about, but I'm hopefully by the end of this uh, time, you that this will become far more uh, important to us. You have a new secure future because of what's happened for us in Christ, all right? So I think Adrian, are you reading for us? Adrian Peterson, everybody, she's going to come up and read. Yes, you can cheer for her. Oh, come on. Yes, thank you for coming to read this morning. Oh, this is like July 4th weekend. It's been like fireworks. I'm kidding. Here we go. Uh, this is Revelation 21, 1 to 5, and then verses 22 through 27. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I did not see the temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates be ever shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is 
shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, a little bit of a preamble uh, before we actually get into the text itself. Because we're talking about the future, and I've said the gospel changes um, our future. And so I want to start by asking you this question. Uh, What is your view of the future? And would argue that every single person in this room, uh, probably more subconsciously than consciously or unarticulated than articulated, has some view of the future. And it's an important question, right? Because uh, I believe, I think Scripture argues this too, that your view of the future however you view the future, that inevitably shapes how you live in the present. So what is true or what you believe to be true about the future, doesn't just, it's not just out there. It actually has a profound impact on your day-to-day life. What I believe about the future inevitably shapes how I live in the present, right? That's why we have phrases like living for the weekend, right? I'm living for the weekend because my week it just stinks, but the weekend, that's the place where I'm, I'm free to do what I want to do. And so, you know, when, when I have a living for the weekend future view, then, then the week is just something to get through, right? It's a slog. Just get through the week, survive. Or if there is no future, like the future that we just read in Revelation 21, Scripture says, hey, that's not really true, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Everything's about your own pleasure. Everything's about just... Get them what you want right now, because who knows what tomorrow is going to bring. So if the future is bleak, it's just kind of a slog, or it's maybe just a place that's all about my pleasure. But if the future is good or if it has prospects, like the ones we just read in Revelation 21, maybe that brings hope or perspective into your life. Maybe it generates some anticipation. Maybe it, if that future is true, it even motivates you to work very hard and even make sacrifices right now or lean into challenges in your life because you know that whatever it is that you're experiencing today, that isn't the ultimate truth. That isn't the final destination. That's not all there is. So growing up, I don't know about you, but I I think I can say this is probably safe for all of us. There was a lot of hope, especially when you're young. I feel like young people tend to be very hopeful about the future, and the older you get, maybe the little more pessimistic or fearful you get about the future. When I was young, everything was about the future, right? There was a strong pull, especially in youth, to everything being about the future. What's next? What's about to be? There was this sense that I'm never really truly satisfied with where things are, there's always this hope and this longing for things to be more than they are. I was reminded getting ready for this, there was a, a good friend of mine who was an author, and he had really good success at a very early age. He wrote a novel, I think by the time he was 23. Had all this success, and yet later, very soon after that, struggled with a lot of depression. And I remember asking him about like the success of writing this book and getting all this kind of acclaim early on. And I remember him saying this, But in Nashville, you're only as good as what you're about to do. It's not about what you've done. It's not about what you've accomplished. Even if you've got great success, it's always about what you're about to do, about what's next. I was watching uh, Star Wars with the boys this week. I was reminded of 
when Yoda, remember when Luke is trying to fast track to Jedi status, he doesn't want to have to go through all the trials and Yoda says to him, you guys want me to do my Yoda voice? Okay, thank you. I figured. Just wanted to check. This one, a long time I have watched. Sorry, I won't do this whole thing. This one, a long time I have watched. All his life he looked away to the future, to the horizon. Never his mind on where he was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? What he was doing. What's Yoda saying? He's never, Luke was never present. It was always about the future. It was always about what's next. Never his mind on what he was doing. Well, I'd love for us to consider, even though Yoda's kind of, he's jabbing Luke with that, right? That actually, we, there's a reason for that. And it's not a bad one. That this longing for this future, this gravitational pull that you and I cannot escape, this sense of hope for things being beyond where they are, it has its root in what Adrian just read for us. That we are longing for that day to come. Scripture says elsewhere in Ecclesiastes 3 that God has set eternity in the hearts of man. In all hearts, believing and unbelieving, that there is an eternal desire and pull, the sense that I know this is not all that I was created for. And you and I, whether you know it or not, but it's dangerous to not know it, y'all. It's super dangerous. You carry around, I carry around that hope, that longing, that desire, consciously or subconsciously with me every single day. I either can articulate it or I can't articulate it. And yet, in an unarticulated state, I don't really understand what my desire is all about. That's why Proverbs 19 says, desire without knowledge is not good. How much more will hasty feet miss the way? You miss what your desire is all about. Because the Bible, by ending this way, especially because it started with a garden and it ends in this place, it is saying this is what your heart's hopes are really all about. And that's tough, if that's really true, because this is the day I can't make happen, right? Behold, I am making everything new, not Dave is making or you are making everything new. So we have that hope, we have that longing, we have that desire, but like Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. My hope, if that's really about that day, then in waiting for that day to come, I experience a sense of heart sickness, don't we? I mean, life is hard, This world is a hard place. I don't make it any easier. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but what? A longing fulfilled is a tree of life. So waiting on this day is difficult, and it's hard on the heart. And if you're like me, you don't always wait well. I get tired of waiting And I try, I try to manufacture, oftentimes out of good things, created things, things that God has given us, try to manufacture elements of this perfection right now. You know, we're all Belinda Carlisles at heart. Who can sing it for me? Oh, come on. Ooh, baby, do you know what that's worth? Come on, all the the over 50 crowds like, yes. Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. They say in heaven, love, I need a keyboard, comes first. We'll make what? Heaven a place on earth? No. We won't. But we still believe it, don't we? I can do it. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in his book, The Glory. The whole book is about that. If you want to go read a lot about it, go read that. But he talks about this. 
This weight, as in weights, heavy, W-E-I-G-H-T, and I call it the weight, the W-E-I-G-H-T, the weight of the weight, W-A-I-T. We wait with weight on us, and it's the weight of glory. And Lewis argues, he said, if you don't, if you don't get comfortable with that inconsolable secret that this is the day that you're waiting for, you're going to destroy your life trying to get this in a way that you can't. This is what he says. The books, again, remember, these are good things. The music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trusted them. It was not in them. It only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only a scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not yet heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. What's Lewis saying? He's saying this, that the things in this life and all of their created goodness, things were created good and yet because of sin, they're broken, they're fractured. Things and all of their created goodness still as good as they can be, are only a hint of what lies ahead at this day. The best job, the best family, the best relationships, the best marriage, the best church, the best fill-in-the-blank. It's still just a hint. It's a fraction of the good that lies ahead of us. Because this day is talking about a day where there is no more sin, there is no more death, and that our lives will be marked by being person in person, face to face, dwelling with God in all of perfection. That that's what is going to arrive. And that's the hope that you have. If you're in Christ this morning, that is the hope that you have. That is the future that you have because of the gospel. And when we talk about hope, biblically, hope is not how we use the word generally in our, in our public. You know, we think of hope as like, man, I hope this happens or I hope I win the Powerball. You know, it's not wishful thinking. Hope in Scripture is a, is a term of certainty. It's certain by faith in a future that is promised by God because it's promised here. Write this down. This is trustworthy. This is true. It's secured by what we celebrate at this table, by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So as, we, as we're going to look at just a little bit of the text this morning, I'd like to suggest this. The more familiar you get with that desire inside of you, the more familiar you get with the fact that all of your heart's affections in your work, in your relationships, they're all aimed. It's all about this. The more familiar you get with that, the more it's going to change how you live today. Because if this truth is truth, if this future is true, then it frames everything about our lives. I have a different life now. I have a different purpose now. I have a different future now. My hope is not just in things going copacetically. I understand suffering in this world and how I engage it in a completely different way. The desires that I have in this world and I experience, I understand them now in light of this truth. Would you get familiar with it? Because there's a danger if you're not. There's a danger if you don't understand the eternity that he has set in your heart. That your desire without knowledge is not good. That your soul is pregnant with the anticipation of this day. 
Because if you don't understand that, if you're not aware of that, you will walk around every day literally trying to squeeze this moment out of everything. You will destroy your relationships. You will destroy all things good trying to get this now. So let's look briefly. There's the preamble. Come on, everybody. This is a little heavy, I know. I wasn't too heavy. I was hopeful. Let's look briefly at some of the key truths in this passage in Revelation that they speak to. Three things, okay? And I'll go quick. New, near, now. Okay? This passage talks about new, near, and now. New. This is the part that I think most people are most familiar with. All things new. Behold, I am making all things new. That's what most of us think about when we think about heaven or we think about eternity. All things new. And why is is that in this life, if you're living awake, you realize that everything new in this life doesn't stay new, right? We want it to stay new. Like I'm the guy who buys a new shirt and somehow every single time I buy a new shirt, I eat a salad that day. And that salad always has an oil-based dressing. And I inevitably, it's like, it doesn't matter. I could literally eat like four feet away from the salad. I somehow get oil on my shirt and my new shirt is ruined, right? I hate it. It's a brand new shirt, but as soon as it's new, it's old. Everything wears out. Everything breaks down. You know, I live in a floodplain. We have a, a bridge that goes over our creek. So does our neighbor. Their last time it flooded, it got wiped out. It took them like a year to find a contractor to even take on the job. They rebuilt it. I kid you not. I walked down there yesterday, and a tree has, it was built a month ago. A tree fell through the center of it, and it's in the bottom of the creek again. And I was laughing. I'm kidding. I was laughing. I was like, oh, my gosh. I'd be going crazy. That's life, right? Everything new becomes old. Everything dirty or clean becomes dirty. Everything worn gets worn out. And yet, we don't go, oh, well, what do we do? We go in search of new things. And do you know what that's all about? That your heart is constantly craving the new because it's about this moment. This is the moment that's set in your heart. When everything is going to be made new, where nothing will age, where nothing will decay, where nothing wears out and die, wears out, will wear out and die. Where everything will be whole and perfect and not age and pure and incorruptible and good and unlosable, eternal. I mean, it's hard. We don't even have, like, how much time do you spend thinking about that? Because everything in our life suggests the opposite. There's never a day coming like that. Because everything's the opposite here. Behold, I'm making all things new. And here's the real focus of the new. There's a bunch of no mores in here. He says there, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And then he says in verse 4, I will wipe away every tear, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Think about our world right now. Can you imagine a world where there's no more death, where there's no more mourning, where there's no more crying, where there's no more pain? It's it's hard to fathom. But that's the day that is to come. That's the hope, the future that you have in Christ. The only one I don't like in here at a surface read is no more sea. I like water. 
right? Not the type that floods my house. But when we read that, we go, seriously, like no ocean in heaven? For the audience of Revelation, this is the genre of this is apocalyptic prophecy. It's poetic language, right? So the sea, what the sea meant in that day and age, and it still can mean this in this day and age, if you've ever gone out to sea, how many people have actually been out in a boat like out to sea where you can't see land? Yeah. Even on a calm day, it's a little freaky, isn't it? Right? Like you realize I'm pretty small out here. Well, that's what the sea represented for the people of Revelation. The sea represented chaos. The sea represented disorder. The sea represented danger and death. It's another way of saying tears, crying, mourning, death. So it's not saying that there won't be any water in heaven. It's saying that there will be no more chaos. There will be no more disorder. There will be no more everything we see every single day in our world. Everything that God has made is going to be made new. Creation is going to be recreated, and it's not going to be a fallen creation. It's going to be technically here a flying creation, literally a new city, the new Jerusalem, new heavens and new earth coming down out of heaven. And everything that has been impacted by sin's curse, all of it is going to be restored. It's going to be renewed. It's going to be resurrected. How? Because he who is seated on the throne said, I'm going to do it. Behold, I am making all things new. Write it down. It's trustworthy and it's true. This is the promise of God to you and me this morning. A promise that we feed on when we come to this table. And the promises of God are important. If you don't know the promises of God, you are literally like somebody who is out to sea with no rudder or no anchor. Because when life gets hard and life is hard, death, mourning, crying, promises of God are literally like an anchor for our souls in the midst of that saying, this isn't all that's true. He's saying, behold, I make all things new because what? I'm on the throne, which means I have the authority and I have the capacity to do it. But ultimately this, I have to make all things new because you can't make all things new. Left to you, left to me, left to us, things stay the way they are. That's how things got broken in the first place. Back in the first garden at this city, this city's going to have a garden at the center of it. In the first garden, what happened? Mankind, man and woman, Adam and Eve, climbed up on the throne of their own lives and said, we got it. And guess what? From that moment on, disorder, chaos, death, tears, mourning, brokenness. He's saying, behold, I have to make all things new because you can't make all things new, but I'm going to and I'm going to do it for you. That's what we celebrate at this table. So all things new, that's amazing, but it's still not the best part of the future. But it's where most people leave off. This is probably the most convicting part of this whole time, this more, or getting ready for the sermon. I think about all things new, but the central image of what's being put forth here is this, not just what's new, but who draws near. And it's someone who's not new, but Scripture says is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All things are going to be made new, but someone's going to draw near. Verse 3, and I heard the loud voice saying from the throne, Look, God's dwelling place is among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. Think about how close you have to be to wipe a tear. Do you hear it? Who's drawing near? 
There's all sorts of metaphors in this passage, super pregnant throughout Scripture. I mean, we could go through a million Scripture references here. There's wedding language. You know, the city's like a bride coming down for her groom. There's dwelling together. They will be his. He will be theirs. There will be no more darkness anymore. There will only be light. There will be this city with the gates wide open. It's basically saying you can live here with your doors unlocked. Okay? He's going to wipe every tear from your eye. But the biggest metaphor here is this. I did not see any temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and his Lamb are the temple. Now, people, first century Jews, would not have been able to imagine not only life without a city, but not life without a temple. You know, it'd be like saying there would be no Chick-fil-A for us. <laughs> Kidding. I don't know. Something very, very, very important in your life. When they say don't see any temple, the temple at that time was the place where the presence of God was made manifest on earth. So this is all about God dwelling with his people. Well, the temple is where God dwelt with his people. So for them to say there is no more temple, they would have gone, huh? Because the temple, that's where God's presence was made manifest. But guess what? There was only one person who ever got to go into God's presence, and it was the great high priest. And he only got to go in there one day a year after he made all of these crazy sacrifices to atone for his own sins and the sins of people. Then one day a year, he got to go into the Holy of Holies and be in the presence of God. So when it says, I don't see a temple in the city, it's basically saying this. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. It's saying the whole city is a temple now. Not just one person gets to go into the presence of God. Everybody gets to go into the presence of the Lord. There is no more holy of holies. There is no intricate sacrificial system. There's no separation at all. No distance, no space. We all have access now. We're all VIPs in heaven. He's drawing that near. And here's what rocked me. Man, this rocked me this week. When I think about heaven, and when I hear people talk about heaven, and I rarely hear people talk about heaven. <clears throat> I, I rarely hear anybody talk about being with Jesus in heaven. Like Lane was on the toilet the other day. I know that's TMI, but she's four, right? She still needs help. And we're sitting on the toilet, and she goes, <laughs> literally out of the blue, she goes, we're all going to die, right? Yeah, I was laughing too, but I was thinking, man, maybe all the existential questions in life come when you're on the toilet, right? When you're vulnerable. <laughs> We're all going to die, right? I'm like, uh, yeah, just can you finish? And we'll talk about this later, I guess. She goes, then we'll get to see Bella, which is our lab. And then we'll get to see Mommy's Hunter. That was her golden. And then we'll see Granddaddy Pete. See, that's all, and it's, yeah, all things new. Resurrected, glorious bodies, new heavens, new earth. But even in my daughter, I sat there and thought, yeah, but no Jesus. And, and I talk like that. And yet the fullest image here is to be dwelling with Jesus. And I, I got to wonder in this, maybe that's why we stop at all things new or we don't even ponder heaven that much at all. It's because it's hard for us to imagine that in heaven, I won't be the focus. That in this picture here, he's at the center. He's at the center of everything. He's the focus of everything. 
that in heaven I won't be the focus of my life. I won't be the focus of my glory, my accomplishments, my stuff, my status. I won't be at the center. Jesus will. And maybe that's why this part of it is so hard for me to even comprehend because everything in this life is imploring me, be at the center of your life. Even in my relationship with the Lord sometimes, it can just all be about me. But in heaven, in this revelation, I won't be at the center. And I would even argue this, this much. Us at the center is why life can be such a living hell. Would you dare to possibly believe that in this new heavens and new earth where Jesus is at the center is the way it was always supposed to be? That that's what sin has done to me. It's moved me to the center. And that's why life is such a train wreck. Why there's death. Why there's mourning. Why there's pain. Why there's sorrow. It's because we're in this great competition to be at the center. All of us. And he's saying, if that's ever going to change, I'm going to have to come do something. So this new heavens and new earth is not just about all of us and all of the created things being perfect and whole, but we're going to be face to face with the one who made it so, and he's going to be at the center. We are going to orbit around him now, not us. New, near, so what about now? If all that's true, you know, do we just kind of like, well, man, that's great. I guess we kind of like cross our fingers and, you know, sit on our hands, you know? Is that, is that all we do? Is there anything that we do right now? Here's what I'd suggest, and then we'll come to the table. Here's how that future, we actually begin to bring the inheritance of that future into the presence, or into the present. In Revelation 22, it's the next, next chapter, last book of the Bible, it says, look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in the scroll. Now remember, it says in there, write this down. I just told you all this, but write it down. You're going to forget it. Write it down. This is trustworthy and true. But he goes on to say, you're going to be blessed if you keep the words. Not just that you have them written down, you keep them. What does it mean to keep the words? Now, I'd argue this, even secular gurus understand really the heart of what it means to keep the words. Tony Robbins says this, what you focus on is what you feel, and what you feel is your experience of life. So whatever you give your attention to, whatever you give your focus to, that frames everything about how you experience your life, right? Or Snickers, right? They've got us in their advertising. You're hungry, you're for something and what you feed on while you wait affects what you become. Same thing. I'd argue that's what it means to keep the words. It's literally saying, hey, you don't just have them, you don't just have them written down, you keep them, right? You feed on them, you focus on them, you consider them. Because what? They're trustworthy and true. And because this, everything that we're going to experience in our daily life suggests the opposite of this day's arrival. All we see in this life often is death and pain and sadness and loss and decay. And when that's all I focus on, when that's all that keeps me, and that's all that I keep, it holds my attention, then it's very easy to become only discouraged, 
only despairing, only doubtful. God, are you trustworthy and true? Is this even real? That's why we got to write these things down. That's why Scripture was written down for us. That's why we have to keep them. We have to feed on them. That's why we come to this table. Do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because something supernatural happens with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit that He's given us. And that's this. There is literally a spiritual chemical reaction that says this actually becomes alive inside of me. It's not just something written down. It's power. It's strength. It's truth in a world that is suggesting everything else. That's why Paul says in Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, think about these things. Keep them. Let them keep you. It's why we come to worship. It's why we go to small group. It's not just religious activity. You are being kept by the truth because you need to be kept by it. When we keep the words, it brings peace into our lives. That's what he says. Think about such things. Whatever you've learned and received, put it into practice. Keep it, and the peace of God will be with you. When you keep the words, it brings peace into your life. And when peace comes into your life, guess what? You become an ambassador. You bring peace, the peace of that day, into this life. We become tear wipers for people who are broken. We bring life where there's only death. We bring joy where there's only sorrow. We bring hope where there's only despair. We bring light into darkness, truth where there's only falsehood and lies. God makes his appeal through us because we actually become a community, a kingdom of priests that literally we live the ethic of this day to come now. We don't orbit around us. If there's anything the world needs to see is a group of people who are setting down self And saying, guess what? There's a different thing to orbit around. It's Jesus. So let's come to the table. I'm going to pray for us here in a second. Because this table is one of the ways we practice the future. Okay? We're going to do it right now. We practice the future that we have a different source of life than this world has in Jesus. In Revelation 19, it says this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's one of the things that's going to happen in this new city. Is there's going to be a feast. And this meal points to it. It's like hors d'oeuvres for the meal that is to come. So if you're in Christ this morning, the future that we just talked about, that future is yours. And communion is literally you're snacking on that future, building spiritual strength and anticipation for the day that is to come so that you can go live in the hope and the peace of it when you walk out these doors today. So if you're in Christ, run to this table. Run down the aisles. Don't come through the center of your chairs. If you're not in Christ, the encouragement would be this. I was praying this for us. If you're not in Christ this morning, would you dare to believe that all of your hope and all of your desire and all of your longing that is is attached to so many things really is about Jesus. It's about this day. I'm praying that you would come awake to it and that you would come to faith in him, that he's the only one that can make you new and that you would come to faith in him before you come to the meal that says you do have faith in him. But if you want to talk about that, come find me. Come find Mitch. Come ask somebody in this room, do you know about Jesus? Because they would love to share. And then there's also an opportunity to examine Where in my life, I told you, 
When I think about heaven, I don't necessarily think about dwelling with Jesus. I think about all the other things. Maybe where in your life is, is your view of eternity just about all these things that maybe those things have become a bit of an idol to you? And the Lord's saying, hey, would you set that down? Because really, when you get there, you're going to be so captivated by my presence that, I, well, what's the old song say? All of the things of this earth will grow f- faintly dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let me pray for us. I'll read the words of institution. When you're ready, come up through the center. Put out your hands. People will be happy to serve you. If you want prayer, cross your arms. If you want gluten-free, do we have that? Or do we have, we do? Over here? Gluten-free on this side. All right? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Minister to us now at the table. Uh, We pray in your name.